I'm going to be in Jonah, if you want to follow in your own Bible. I'm reading from the New American Standard, so uh, if you've got a different translation, it may vary here and there with one or two words, but it won't be very different. Okay, the story of Jonah. It's an unusual story, remarkable story, and uh, we'll get into it straight away. Jonah and chapter 1. We're just going to look at the first chapter today. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you're sleeping? Get up. Call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we'll not perish. Each man said to his mate, come, let us cast lots. We may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and a lot fell on Jonah. They said to him, tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He said to them, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who has made the sea and the dry ground. And the men became extremely frightened. And they said to him, how could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told them. So they said to him, what should we do with you? That the sea may become calm for us. For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. He said to them, pick me up throw me into the sea then the sea will become calm for you for I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you however the men rowed desperately to return to the land but they couldn't for the sea was becoming even stormier against them then they called on the Lord and said we earnestly pray O Lord don't let us perish on account of this man's life don't put innocent blood on us For you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. And the men feared the Lord greatly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that we've been able to sing great truths to you. We, we say, Lord, we love your presence. We love drawing near to you. We thank you we can sing your grace is enough for us. We thank you, Lord, that we experience you in this 21st century as a God who helps us in life, who meets needs, 
who cares for us, Father. We thank you for your tender mercies. And Lord, we approach you right now, Father, in Jesus' name, and pray that the Holy Spirit will come upon us now. Come and be our teacher, Lord. Holy Spirit, please let us hear the voice of God as we gather here. Let us hear more than a human voice. Let us hear your voice in our hearts, Lord, that you might bring fruit from our being here, that this is not just doing a religious thing for a while, but we meet with God together. So, Holy Spirit, be our teacher. Lead us into truth, we pray, Father. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the story... Whoops, here we go. Okay, thank you. Uh, the story of Jonah is a pretty famous story and yet a very unusual one because uh, it's uh, full of extraordinary miracles. There's a storm that stops immediately. There's a great fish. There's a national repentance. Uh, there's extraordinary things. People think, well, could this be a true story? Is it just a fable? Or some have said, well, is it kind of a parable? Is it like Israel, the nation of Israel was so rebellious, so uh, unresponsive to God? that actually they were swallowed up by Babylon, a great nation, for a season, and then kind of spewed out again, and people say, oh, is it a kind of a parable story? And yet the Bible itself uh, refers to Jonah elsewhere, Uh, we'll come to that shortly, uh, where he's referred to as a prophet in his generation, with uh, some background to his ministry, and also Jesus referred to him uh, in a very factual kind of way, as he did to the Queen of Sheba, another real-life historic character, So he's referred to uh, normally uh, as a prophet of God. So this uh, very, very strange story is here for us to consider. And it's a story uh, of a, sadly, uh, a backslidden prophet. He was an authentic prophet. It says quite plainly, the word of the Lord came to him. That's a mark of a prophet. It means that God speaks to this guy, that he's God's voice, God's representative. God can speak to people through this man. And that was the unique thing about Israel, that God chose a nation. He began to make himself known to them. And of the nation, he would, from time to time, pick out a person and they would become his mouthpiece. And the word of God would come to them and they would speak for God. So this nation was hugely privileged that they weren't wondering what's the world all about. God had made himself known and would speak from time to time. Here, the word of the Lord has come to Jonah. Now, he's a true prophet, but you'll just find that you don't need to turn there. But in 2 Kings 14, you'll find him referred to, where it says in verse 23, in the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria. He reigned 41 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He didn't depart from all his sins, or the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he had made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was in Gathhepha. And so, Here's a period of Israel's history where this man, Jeroboam, had extended the borders 
of the nation, though it says, and I read it to you, he was an evil king, he was disobedient to God, but economically the nation was enjoying uh, great success. There was favor, there was extension, there was multiplication, favor on the nation, and it was, as it says, as Jonah had prophesied it would be. So Jonah's an authentic prophet, and he prophesied blessing in the nation, and even in spite of the nation being out of step with God, blessing was taking place. So Jonah's kind of vindicated. He is God's voice, and God is there with him, owning him. A very comfortable place to be a prophet. And then suddenly the story starts. Then God spoke to Jonah and said, Arise and go to Nineveh. It's a word that comes to him that is not comfortable. A word that comes to him that doesn't fit in with his preferences, with his uh, saying, yeah, I'm here in Israel, God's blessing Israel. I know we're a bit backslidden, but God's blessing us anyway, and I gave the correct word. You know, I'm a vindicated prophet, um, nothing much to worry about. Suddenly, God interrupts his comfort with a fresh word. And you know, God can do that to any one of us. He can suddenly speak. He is God. He can break out any time. And so this man who has the privilege of hearing God's voice suddenly hears a word that actually he doesn't want to hear. And that's what the story is all about. It's an amazing story, the story of Jonah, because actually, in terms of prophecy, he only prophesies eight words. Now, many prophet, uh, books of prophets in the Bible, uh, the whole book is prophesying. If you look at Isaiah, there's a little bit of history thrown in there, but there's chapter after chapter after chapter of things he's saying. And Jeremiah, and although with Jeremiah you're allowed to see a little bit into the guy's life and character, but many books of prophets in the Bible are, are just, thus says the Lord, and there it comes. This story, there's four chapters, but only eight words of prophesying. And so actually the book is much more about what happened to the guy. It's here to teach us from his experience, not so much from the actual prophecy, the actual words of what he has to say. And so here's a a prophet that's kind of out of step with God. And God is concerned for the whole world. God is concerned about Nineveh. If we had time to look at the whole book, which is fascinating, it doesn't take very long to read, short book. He's passionately concerned about a nation, a great city-state, that has turned its back and is growing more and more evil, more and more gross. And God is saying to this man, I care about this. I'm concerned about this. I'm not just here to pat you on your head in your safe place. Uh, I am the God of the whole world. And here suddenly there comes a word that is uncomfortable for him. And uh, he has forgotten that God cares for the whole nation, or the whole world rather. When God first called Abraham the father of the Jewish nation, he said to him, through you, I will bless all the families of the earth. So God came to Israel with a view to blessing the world, not just to bless Israel. God's concern was for the whole of the world. And he began to work. And when these nationalist people were walking with God, they remembered that. So the psalmist often speaks about all the nations will praise you. All the nations will come to you. And when they were walking with God, they remembered who they were. We're here for the nations. We're here for the glory of God. We're here to spread abroad the fame of God. Uh, But they tended to forget that and just think, no, God's here with us in our little world, 
And that's what he's here for, just to bless us and uh, care for us. So suddenly this word comes to him and, and speaks to him in a very scary way. And uh, says, go. And we find uh, immediately this resistance. You don't find, uh, when he says, I'm going to judge Nineveh, as this word comes, you don't find Abraham, uh, and Jonah rather, like Abraham. But God spoke to Abraham and said, I'm going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm going to destroy the whole thing. You find Abraham immediately gets hold of God. Lord, don't do that. And pleads with God for them and cries out and prays. Lord, if you find 100 righteous, if you find 50 righteous, if you find 10 righteous, he's just pleading with God. Jonah's not like that. Jonah's saying, I'm I'm out of here. He doesn't share anything of God's heart. He doesn't have any kind of response to God. Or you see it similar with, with Moses when God said, I'm going to blot out the whole nation. I'll start again with you, Moses. And Moses pleads with God. These are men of God. These are men who care about God's glory, who care about God's creation. Jonah doesn't. He really doesn't. And he's not at all like these great Bible characters. And so this fresh kind of introduction into what God wants to happen finds him out. It seems to be outside of his his world. It's a bit like Peter associating with Jesus and enjoying being with Jesus, and then Jesus says, we're going up to Jerusalem. It's like Peter says, that's a scary place to go. We don't want to go there. Don't go there. No, no, don't go there. He's missed the point. He's lost the plot. He loves being around Jesus, but he forgets we're off to Jerusalem. We're going to, uh, in fact, go to the cross. And so you'll find that these things take place, and they find out how, how we can be out of step with God's purpose. So we get here, unlike the story of Elijah, when it says, God said to Elijah, arise and go. And it says immediately, every time it says this, so Elijah arose and did it. He said to Abraham, go, even take your son, your only son, whom you love. It says early in the morning, he arose to do it. These Bible characters were inclined to do what God said. But here, No, no, God calls him, and he refused. But Jonah, the story starts kicking in. But Jonah, Jonah had a different idea. He had a different concern, and uh, it could be the end of the story, couldn't it? It could be, but Jonah said, no, off goes, you know, off stage left. God says, okay, Amos, come and do it for me. It could be like that, couldn't it? Okay, Jonah, forget it. If you don't want to do it, go. I'm going to call Amos. I think one of the wonderful things about Jonah is God's phenomenal patience with his servant who so lost the way, who so misses God's purpose. But it's not like that's the end of, that's the end of Jonah then. We'll call the book something else. The whole point is on Nineveh. The whole point is on this 120,000 people that God is concerned about, it says at the end of the book. But actually, the book of Jonah is more about Jonah. It's more about this guy. And it shows us God's incredible kindness. As we heard in the meeting, sometimes we think, well, I'm finished, I'm, I'm written off. And that comes again and again in the book of Jonah. And you get this extraordinary thing that God has not finished with his servant. It looks like that's something God wants to say to some of us here this morning as Linda brought her word. God has not finished. God's got things for us. Even when we have grown weary, maybe we've grown lukewarm. Maybe we've lost the plot, but God's still got time for us. And the book of Jonah is saying God has still got time, not just to get his purpose fulfilled, 
Not, he hasn't only got his eye on this city that he's concerned about. He's got his eye on his servant. He wants his servant through. He wants his servant sharing his heart. He wants his servant to understand what's taking place. He wants fellowship with this guy he's chosen, called, and made into his prophet. It's not enough. Okay, you won't do it? Clear off then, Jonah. I'll get Amos to do it. It's not like that. He's going to take time with this guy. He's going to help him in spite of his shortcomings. And so we find the word of the Lord came. Sometimes the word of the Lord comes to us. Because we're all, in the New Testament, it says, I'll pour my spirit on all flesh. It's like the whole of the New Testament people are like prophets of God. God speaks to us. The word of the Lord comes to us. We hear God speak to us. He gives us instructions. And sometimes there are things we don't want to hear. Like, why do you want to go out with that, um, that non-Christian guy? Why are you pursuing him? He's not a believer. Or why do you want to go to that, that girl? She's not, she doesn't know Jesus. Why, what, what are you doing? Don't go there. He says things to us. He speaks into our lives. He, he says, now, come on, I want you to do such and such. I want you to, take, I want you to be caring for those poor people in this area. What are you doing about them? Are you going to go and help them? Are you going to make, how about some outreach ministry to the people who are, they don't know how to cope? And we're a living church here, so I want you to be a light. You know, but that's uncomfortable. We don't know those people anyway. And who knows them? We don't know them. And we can find, hey, I want you to raise your children with biblical discipline. Oh, who does that these days? Come on, let them run. Come on, no one can do it. Jesus, no, I want you to raise them godly. I want you to take seriously raising your kids. But nobody does that anymore. I want you to cherish your wife and lay your life down for her. Come on, come on. I want you to submit yourself to your husband and obey him. Come on, obey him. You must be joking. So there's all kinds of words that come from the Lord which don't immediately find, yeah, I'd love to do that. Because that's not, that's not my comfort zone. That's not a word I want to hear. I, I, I would rather choose something else, thank you. And so God's, God wants his purpose fulfilled. God's got plans. He knows how to run our lives. But we often want to make our choices which are out of step with his choice. We prefer not to do it that way. Because what? Other people don't do it. Why should I do it? And so there's that failure to be a prophet of God. Failure to line up with God. Failure to cherish hearing his voice as the biggest thing in the world. To know him. To have him speak to me. For him to be in my life. No, well, actually, that's not very comfortable for me. So these books in the Bible, they're not here just for our entertainment. They're here to speak to us. All these things are recorded for our sake. And so we see what happens to a guy who begins to lose the plot. Who begins to say, no, I don't think I want to do that. I don't want to do that. You say this, I don't want to do it. So the story says, Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Fred from the presence of the Lord. Now, it's interesting, you compare Bible verse with Bible verse. It says in Psalm 139, where can I flee from your presence? It's like if I make my bed in hell, you're there. If I climb the mountains, you're there. If I'm going the depths, you're there. I can't, I can't get away from your presence. That's one of the things that says in the Bible. There's no hiding place, actually. And yet it says here, he fled from the presence of the Lord. And so you have to understand this in two different ways. There's a sense in which God is everywhere. Yes, he is. 
He really is. You make your bed in hell, he sees you. He knows. He knows. You can't really flee in that sense. But another word for presence, what it means in the Bible, is face-to-face fellowship. The word presence and the word face come together. It's like he fled from face-to-face fellowship with God. And in a sense, when he did that, he ceased to be what a prophet should be. That was the whole point of being a prophet. A prophet has face-to-face fellowship with God. That's what makes him pretty special. That's why Elijah, you remember Elijah, he bursts on the scene. He says, go, uh, he goes to the king, not just, he goes to the king, and he says to the king, it won't rain until I say so. And then he says this, the God before whom I stand. You see, he's a prophet because he experiences face-to-face fellowship with God. Therefore, he can confront the king. Because that's what a prophet is. He's so in fellowship with the creator of the world, it doesn't matter who stands before. Then when the three years are up, he comes to Ahab again. He says, now it's going to rain. Come on, stop. No, no, I'm telling you, it's going to rain now. How can you say things like that? I stand in the presence of God. That's, that's, how, that's how the prophet has power. That's how the prophet has authority. That's how Moses could stand before Pharaoh. Moses was a great prophet. He stood before Pharaoh and said, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. And in the end, Pharaoh, this great emperor of the mightiest nation in the world at that time, who when Moses first stood before him, he just says, get out of here, get out. Who do you think you are? Clear off. And then gradually, this authority, as plague after plague hits Egypt, gradually this man's authority assumes a huge proportion. And he starts saying to Pharaoh, when would you like it to stop? When would you? He's, saying, it's like God is speaking because this man stands before God. A prophet is someone who stands before God, who, who hears God, who enjoys God's comradeship, fellowship, partnership, face-to-face. Jonah fled from face-to-face fellowship with God. God's everywhere, but he's no longer in that community. He's no longer like a prophet, because to be honest, that is what authenticates a prophet, that you're in the presence of God. And that's something for us all in this New Testament, when it says in the New Testament, all may prophesy. We're all sons of God. Because we're sons, we have the spirit of his son in our heart. We've all got face-to-face, we all have the potential of face-to-face fellowship with God now. That's the massive privilege of Christians. We can know him. Jesus said this, He's always with me. Always. Then he said this, I always please him. I'm always pleasing him. Because I crave face-to-face fellowship. The psalmist said, one thing I desire of the Lord, that I'll seek after, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord, to behold the face of God, to behold the beauty of the Lord. Is that treasuring of experienced fellowship? That's what the Christian has been introduced to. Through the blood of Jesus, we are introduced to fellowship with God. It's our huge privilege. We can live with God. And that's why when we speak to people from time to time, there should be an authority resting upon us, upon you. But when you speak, when people say, hey, we could all lose our jobs. I don't know what's going to happen to the firm. 
I mean, it's going down, the money's going, the orders are going. What do you think we're going to do? And there's something about you when you say, well, I'm going to trust God in this. And you may learn to say things not too religiously, but you communicate peace. You communicate security. And people should be staying. What is it with you? You're in the same boat as us. You could lose your job as well. How, you know, how come you, you communicate differently? How come you communicate differently? Well, actually, the secret is outside, behind the scenes, you're face-to-face with God. In his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's what Jonah left. He left, the, he left that enjoyment of the presence. He's a prophet, and he didn't put high value on face-to-face fellowship. And he ran from the presence of the Lord. And incidentally, you, you can do that without physically running away. The story of the prodigal son is one of the most sad stories in the Bible, really, but it's a pretty famous story, how a guy went away, um, took his half, the inheritance of the father, gave one or two sons, he took his half, squandered the whole deal, came back and found mercy. But actually, probably the story of the prodigal son is more about the other brother. If you look at where Jesus told the story, he told the story to the Pharisees who were religious people who'd never been into the far country. When Jesus mixed with sinners, he ate with them. He sat down. They said, he's a wine bibber. He's a wine guzzler. He sits with sinners. He's supposed to be a rabbi. He sits with sinners. And Jesus said, I'll tell you a story. He tells about the guy who went off and comes back. And then this is where the hook of the story is. This other son said, what are you doing? Why are you welcoming back? I never fled from your presence. I never squandered your money on harlots. I never did. And and the father has to turn and says, look, all I have is yours. That's the point of the story. It's like, you Pharisees, you're happy to stay at home, but you don't want my fellowship. So some of us don't go into the far country. Some of us have kept our nose clean. Some of us, you could never say to them, look at him. No, no, we've got raised a good home and the rest of it. But do we prize the presence? Do we love to be with our Father? So it's not like you have to go physically long. You can be, as it were, never left home, but not really knowing the Father's heart. So when the prodigal came back and the Father threw a party, and the other brother said, what are you doing? Throwing a party for this waste of time. And it's like, you don't know my heart, son. You're at home, but you don't know me. So we can be out of the presence that we never left home. What we should prize is the sort of stuff we've just been singing. Lord, it's your presence we love. It's being with you. That's what makes Christianity work. The rest is religious. This is the heart of things. So this guy, he doesn't care. He runs away. Right? He fled from the presence of the Lord. Then it says this, he found a ship. He found it. He decided to go to Tarshish, which is going the opposite direction. Tarshish is probably like, he's, he's in Israel, he's told to go this direction, he finds a ship going in that direction. He's probably going to Spain. It's the opposite, and he says, I'm going to Tarshish. And then he gets there and he says this, he finds a ship going to Tarshish. Oh, that's convenient. 
So God doesn't mind after all. I mean, it just was there. It's like, yeah, it's okay. There's the ship. It's going. It's like we got our guidance. There's the ship. It just happened. It just happened. You know, there it came on the scene. I mean, it's obvious guidance. Because it, happened. it turned out that way. It's very sad when believers get into a mess because something turned up. Well, she was at the office, and we really liked one another, and my marriage was really ropey. And, well, I mean, she's there, isn't she? I mean, obviously, God did it. I mean, God, God threw us together. It's like, there's a ship. So it's proof. It's proof it's okay. No, no, no. He's going away from the presence of the Lord. See, sometimes people say, well, circumstances prove it. It was okay. Listen, the devil's got thousands of ships going to Tarshish. He can always bring you a ship going to Tarshish. He says, well, it's God. God did it. Now, it says about the Apostle Paul, he wanted to go a certain way and the Spirit forbade him. Then he tried to go another way, the Spirit forbade him. And then the Spirit opened up the way to Macedonia. But Paul was sold out to the purpose of God. So God made those circumstances work. This guy's running from God. This guy's not enjoying God's presence. He's just looking the way things turn out. Ah, here's a ship. (laughs) All's well. It wasn't. All was wrong. It looked easy. It looked somehow vindicating his rebellion, and he snatched it. Don't do it, friends. Don't do it. He made a terrible mistake. He went in a way he should never have gone. He gets on the ship, and then it says this. He went down into the ship, and he fell asleep. So he fled from the Lord. He found a ship. He fell asleep. He went down into it, and he fell asleep. Sleep's okay, isn't it? Jesus fell asleep. Jesus fell asleep in a storm. There's a storm raging all around him. It says Jesus was asleep. Nothing wrong with sleep. It says another time in John 4, he came to the the well at Samaria. He sat down. He was weary. In fact, we're told in the Bible, he gives his beloved sleep. There's nothing wrong with sleep. The sleep, that is the result of hard work, Rest at the end of it. A time of, reflect, a time of refreshing. It's God's way. God gives us sleep. Praise God for sleep. But there's a sleep here that isn't just rest. It's obviously saying a bit more. He's run away from God. He's in the wrong place. As a result, he falls asleep. Because what am I doing on planet Earth? I might as well go to sleep. There's a kind of sleep that is a result of aimlessness. Lethargy. Like, what's the point anyway? And that's the idea you get here. Even, even the disciples who were following with Jesus in Gethsemane, it says they fell asleep for sorrow. They just fell asleep. They lost the plot. They weren't really understanding what Jesus was doing. There is a sleep that is saying, I don't, I don't, I've lost the story. I've lost the plot. I've lost purpose. I might as well sleep. 
Now that is a very sad place for a believer who's, who, who was dead in trespasses and sins and God's made alive. We're raised to newness of life. He that has the Son has life. And yet sometimes our life is characterized by sleep. You just put, what are we doing? Purpose, ah, turn the television on. They said, what's the point? Until in the end you start getting your kicks elsewhere. In what is it can light up my life? And, and we're looking for something else because, well, we, the life that God has for us, the purposeful life, and Jonah is a prophet of God. He's God's voice, God's mouthpiece, God's agent, God's servant, and he's fallen asleep because he's off course, and now he's just a waste of time. It's a very tragic thing. When Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth, if you lose your saltiness, you're good for nothing. It's like you can tread it underfoot. That's a sad statement. And here Jonah's like that. He's, he's, he's lost his purpose. He's asleep. He's not a voice anymore. And so he's in a situation now where boredom and dejection, it's not just a healthy rest. It's a bad deal. It's even possible to be very busy and bored at the same time. It's possible to be just really just, you know, so many demands, so many, and yet in the midst of a lot of activity, inside you're asleep. You're like just putting up with it. Just, it's just become routine. It's just... Because you've lost, the, you've lost the plot. You've lost the motivation. You've lost face-to-face fellowship. And so it's just letting, it, just letting life carry you along. And somehow you have, you have to look elsewhere for your excitement. Other things have to get you getting really going. See, we can all enjoy the whole world that God's given us. We can scream when the, when the cardinals win. That's great. It's tremendous when our team wins. But in the end, if you know, I mean, actually, that's the only place I get my fun. It's this distraction or that distraction or this thing or that thing. Because at the center, there's nothing there exciting me. God doesn't want us to be ascetics. He doesn't want us going to live in a, uh, in a monastery. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life. Have it in all its fullness. Not that I, I didn't say I've come that you might have meetings and have them abundantly. He wants us to enjoy life, but he wants to be at the heart of it. He wants to be the one that's pumping the energy into us. Amen? Is that how it is for us? That's what he wants for us. That he might be at the center. Otherwise, we begin to fall asleep. It's a sad, sad thing. It says about the sluggard. If you look at Proverbs, there's some pretty famous characters in the book of Proverbs. One of them is the sluggard, this character, uh, one of these people that the Proverbs... It says, the, the sluggard is like a door. He's, like, he's, like, he's on a bed, but he's like a door on a hinge. He's <laughs> like hinged to the bed. You don't think, come on. He says, a sluggard, he puts his spoon into the mouth, but he's too lazy to bring it back up again. There's these crazy things, all in the book of Proverbs. The sluggard says, I would go out, but there's a lion outside. It's like, it's just, I can't be bothered. Now, believers, when we get there, it's a sign, it's a symptom 
Something's gone wrong. Is that how it's got for you? We're just kind of coping. But there's nothing that stirs us, nothing that excites us. And so, yeah, he just fell asleep. And then next, he, he failed the world. Because a storm came. You see, that's, that's one of the things we can't predict. The Bible says the days are evil. Be watchful, the days are evil. And we can be, we can be coasting, but you cannot tell when some massive thing comes into your life whether it's personal, in the home, sickness, whether it's a job situation, things just sweep in unexpectedly. Things that you never, you know, I I read in the paper yesterday, at least on the news, I read in Orissa, India, because of the cyclone, 500,000 people have been evacuated. That's half a million people have been evacuated because of cyclone. Then you hear what comes sweeping into the States, into Florida, or what happened in the... Uh, um, ha, your southern city some years ago. Joplin? Joplin? Yeah, that'll do. You have, you have many of them here. You have many of them here. I, I was, I was uh, thinking of another place, but never mind. You get them a lot here. And, and you just don't know. And suddenly, you're in massive crisis. Totally unpredicted. I mean, you lost your house. We were just in Colorado where uh, they just had this huge fire. And the guy was speaking to us. He said, we, just, we, th- we were told by the police, you've got to leave now. Your, your house is now threatened. I had to get out of their home. This is their lovely home. I mean, things happen, and then floods came. See, when you're, when you're not walking with God, you are vulnerable to all kinds of things. Suddenly a storm hits. You're just asleep. And so we're just like anybody else. Which are, you don't, you've got to, how do you find the Christian when the storm comes? We'd better take a lot. They, it says they, they cast lots to see who's the guy. Because he doesn't look any different to anybody else. See, when big storms sweep in, do we turn to us? Because they well, he, she's amazing. She's got peace. Something about her. Let's turn to her. Let's turn to him. I don't know. He seems to know God. No, no. Just, how do you find them? Well, we cast lots. Because he doesn't look any different to anybody else. He's just asleep. So they have to do that. They cast lots. So he's, he's a waste of time. But there's no, there's, we don't know when things are going to hit us. We don't know when a crisis suddenly overwhelms. And that's the very nature of life. It doesn't knock the door. It doesn't promise, hey, on such and such a date, this is going to happen. It's just there. And a storm comes, and he hasn't anything distinctive about him until they start pressing him. They start pressing him. Who are you? What's going on in your life? And then they start showing, isn't this amazing? They start showing more grace than he's showing. They say, we've got to do something. It's like bail out. Let's do something. Will you help us? And what can happen sometimes in modern society is that a crisis can hit, whether it be sudden famine over here or sudden... And suddenly, often the world comes awake and says, will your church help us? We're going to do this. You think, we're supposed to be the light of the world. And they're showing more compassion than we are. 
And so it's a real shame in the story. This man of God is just being co-opted by other do-gooders. And, they, and that, the people think the church is just a do-good thing anyway. So can't you come and get your church to help us with this? And you think, well, we'll just pick up a bucket then and throw it over. We'll just take a bucket. And Jonah knows the story isn't in the bucket. Jonah knows the story is about him. The problem is him. He knows suddenly, he says, no, I am the problem. The reason all this is happening is because of me. And this is the amazing thing. That the whole story revolves around the man of God. It's all happening because of the man of God. And this is the amazing thing, that God will sometimes organize your circumstances that look as though they're completely out of control. And it's you he's after. You're the one. And suddenly, Jonah knows more than the meteorological office knows about this storm. You know, you can, win, you can watch the cyclones. He says, it's me. It's all about me. Because God cares for his son, his daughter. He cares for you. And he organizes circumstances, but his eyes on you. It's your heart he's after. It's your relationship he wants. It's your fellowship he's seeking. Otherwise, he could have said, okay, goodbye, Jonah. Come on, Amos. Now I'm going to pursue you. Isn't it wonderful? God pursues you. I know when I was a backslidden teenager, I knew I was born again. I lived a terrible life. And so often I could feel God pursuing me. God suddenly making me feel terribly uncomfortable in a situation. God, I shouldn't be here. No, I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be in this setting. What am I doing here? And, and you just knew God, God let that happen because he's after you because he's got plans for you. He's got purposes for you. He's got a job for Jonah and he wants his servant. He doesn't just want the job done. This is the wonderful thing about God. He doesn't just want the job done. He wants you to do it. He cares about you. He cares about me. He's amazing. He loves us individually. He cares for us individually. He's got purpose for your life. And he wants you through into what he's doing. So we see here God beginning to deal with his servant. And finally, Jonah kind of found himself. It's a bit like the prodigal son. I love that phrase. In the prodigal son, it says, he came to himself. It's a scary place to come to. Yeah, it's so important. So important. That's where big decisions are made. When you, you, come, you stop doing this, and you're this, and this, and I'll keep myself busy, and that he came to it. And see, the prodigal son, he, he, he got so much until he ran out of money. Then he's got nothing. Then he came to himself. And we can go off on a wrong path. We can take a boat because it's going off. And all, it's all what's happening, it's happening, it's happening, and then it's stopping, and then, oh, I've come to myself. And he says, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord. Now, you wouldn't know that. You wouldn't know that, but it's true. He, he, he does fear God. He's not living that way. He's not living like a man who fears God. That's not, if you looked at him, you would never know that man fears God. But he said, that's who I am. That's, if I'm going to be true to myself, that's who I am. I fear God. And, I, and, and he's effectively saying, I am not being true to myself. I'm not being the person I should be. 
And so this storm, all these events, they're about me. Because God cares about me. God cares about you this morning, beloved. He cares about you. He wants the best for you. He's after you. And he says, then the others became very frightened. This can happen on a large scale, to be honest. It's like revival. When the the church wakes up to who she really is, real revival brings fear on others. I I love reading about revivals. I'm reading, I brought a book with me to read about. I felt God said to me some weeks ago, read about revival. I'm, I'm reading, I just read a bit more yesterday. I thought, wow, when the church suddenly wakes up to who she is, it somehow brings a fear. There's an awareness, these people know God. And it sweeps over the banks of meetings into the culture. Uh, and he wakes up, says, I, I fear the Lord, I am the servant of the Lord. That's my true identity, that's who I am. And then, to close this morning, suddenly, he, can't, he gets to be like Jesus. Suddenly. It's interesting, in the New Testament... Jesus says, one greater than Jonah is here. Why? What do I say is like Jesus? Well, he says, he says to them, throw me in the storm. You can go free. Throw me in. Let me take the, let me take the rap. You'll be okay. And that's, that's exactly like Jesus. Jesus said, I, I came not to be served but to serve and lay down my life a ransom. Now, he wasn't running from anyone. He wasn't disobeying the Father. He was totally, step by step, obeying the Father. But he came to that place where he said, I'll, I'll take your place. I'll, I'll, I'll go where you deserve to go. You failed me miserably. You failed God. You're not walking in the light. You're not walking with God. You're making decisions that are against what God wants you to do. You're disobeying him. You're doing stuff you want to do, not what he wants you to do. And Jesus said, I know that's true, but I will take your place. I will stand in your place, as though I did all those things. And Jesus, the Bible says this, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. He took our place that we might be saved. And Jesus effectively said, throw me into the storm. And that's the center of the gospel. That's the heart of everything. That's where Jesus comes up to Jerusalem and he trembles before it at one point and says, Father, can you save me from this? Do I have to go into this door? Do I have to go into this door? And then he says, save me from this hour? No, no, no. To this purpose came I to this hour. Shall I not drink the cup the Father's given me? I came for this. This, For this purpose I came, to be thrown into the storm. If you read Jonah 2, which I'm not encouraging you to do now, it's almost like Jesus' prayer. The billows have gone over my head. I'm being dragged down. Jesus went into the storm. Nowhere to place his feet. No standing place. He's totally overwhelmed. Descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars around me forever. It's like, it's like if Jesus was praying a prayer as he went down into death, this is the kind of prayer he's praying. I'm going down, I'm going down, I'm going down. Beloved, so that we could go free. The gospel's wonderful. We, we have so often gone to our own way. We all, like sheep, have gone our own way. 
God says, do this, I want you to do that. I want to... No, I'm not doing that. I've, I've, this is the standard. This is, the state. this is what I want you to live. This is the pattern for life. Here are the, key, the keys to life. Do it this way. Raise your family this way. Raise your kids this way. Have this attitude to your husband, to your wife, to your job. This is the way to do it. This is the life to live. No, I'd rather do this. Every one of us turned to our own way, but the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He said, throw me into the storm. Jesus was thrown into such a storm that we'll never, never know. So we go free. So the punishment's taken off. And though we're the sinners, though we're the ones who wouldn't do what God said, he still loves us. He doesn't say, oh, go on then, go to hell. You want hell? Go there. He doesn't say that. You want your own thing? Go there. It's just amazing. And this morning God's saying to you, come on, I love you. It's you I want. It's your fellowship. It's face to face that I want. 